The word of the Lord from 2 Timothy 2, 1 through 7. You then, my child, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Share in suffering as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. No soldier gets entangled in civilian pursuits, since his aim is to please the one who enlisted him. An athlete is not crowned unless he competes according to the rules. It is the hard-working farmer who ought to have the first share of the crops. Think over what I say, for the Lord will give you understanding in everything. Thank you, Tess. Good morning. I'm thankful to be with you here this morning. Most of us know each other for known each other for a long time, but if you don't know me, my name is Doug Gamble. Uh, my wife and I have been part of this body for many years. Although for almost 20 years we've been ministering in Central America down in Costa Rica in a variety of capacities. Most recently, the last couple of years, we've been working at a seminary down there training pastors and future missionaries and Christian workers who spread over Latin America and really sort of all over the globe as the Latin movement to the 1040 window kind of lights up. If you want to know more about that little commercial, you can come to our, uh, our uh, vision lunch on, on July 28th, but uh, we'll share more for you then. But tonight is Tom and Melissa's dessert uh, dinner at the SIG, dessert, not dinner, dessert. Uh, vision time uh, tonight at 7, so uh, hope to see you there. Back to the task at hand, we're in uh, chapter 2 of our study of Second Timothy. I want to thank Josh for his great work here and walking us through the first chapter, and he'll be taking the baton further. I do really appreciate how the Lord has enabled Josh to see how the scriptures speak to our current cultural moment and the current cultural challenges. I think uh, he's particularly gifted that way. I will say, though, I was here during the first service last week, and uh, some, I was somewhat, with Josh's service, left in the dark, so to speak. If you don't know, the power went out in the middle of the whole thing, so we had to finish it in the dark. By context, these are the last words, written words we have of the Apostle Paul, without question one of the most important writers in world history. At the moment, he's imprisoned in Rome for the second time. He's facing his imminent execution. And in chapter 1, at the end, he speaks that at this particular moment, he has been abandoned by many who are closest to him. One refreshed him, Onesiphorus. But it's hard to imagine how he must have felt desolate and lonely at this moment, in that kind of damp prison cell, isolated, facing death at any moment. And it really could have been at any moment. And at this point in his letter, he does what he does several times in 1 Timothy and in 2 Timothy. He goes from the big picture and suddenly focuses very specifically and personally on Timothy. And you can see that in that first line. He says, you then, my child. So as we get into the text, let's pray. Lord, unless you build the house, those who build it build in vain. Unless you breathe life into our reading of the word today, we won't understand what it really means. And I pray that you'll do that, that this word would be your word for us today and that each of us would take it exactly as you intend it, and respond exactly as you wish by the power that you give us in the Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. First of all, I have to 
they have to say here that it's not my child. The literal word is my son. Paul says Timothy is his son. We don't know much about Paul's personal life. We assume that because he was a Pharisee that he had been married, but we hear nothing of his wife. We don't know if perhaps she died early on or if after Paul came to Christ that she left him. We don't know anything about any children. The closest thing we get from Paul to referring to children is to Timothy. And so he calls him my son. So I want to encourage us today to to view these verses as as the writings of a father who knows he's about to die and is writing his last words to his son. He doesn't know if he'll see Timothy again. And we don't know if he did. So what is he going to say? What does he want for his son uh, as, as he, as the father, passes away? Before we get to what he wants for him, though, I want to point out a couple things that he doesn't say. So we'll see by contrast that what he does say. Notice he doesn't say, son, I just want you to be a successful young man. You know, that idea of success that we carry around in our culture today has no place in the Bible. You can't see that in Moses' teaching to the children of Israel. We need to go out there and be successful. Jesus, can you imagine a a sermon to his disciples on seven ways, seven key habits to success in our world today? It's about pick up your cross and follow me. It's about being broken and contrite in heart. It's about being humble and recognizing our need. Neither does Paul say to Timothy, Son, I just want you to be happy. I've said that to my kids, and I have to recalibrate here. You see, happiness is not a particularly biblical concept either. Joy is. Joy that has the foundation of God's sovereignty and goodness and grace. Yeah, that's, that's there, but happiness, no. You know, that word happiness is, comes from an old English word about what happens. It's about luck. It's really, it's, it's the root of the word luck. As though our happiness is dependent on the, our, the luck of our circumstances. My last name is Gamble. I don't want my well-being to depend on luck. I want it on something more, found, more, more firm than that, right? But your well-being and my well-being depend on the Lord and Savior, who has given himself for us, who is far above all our circumstances, and who lives forever. That's where we want our well-being to be focused. And I'm going to mention one other thing that Paul does not say to his son as he's about to die. And I picked this one up just the other day, about six weeks ago. And most of you know, I mean, right now I'm teaching the Word of God in the, in the, in the, in the seminary. But for many years I taught in Coal Valley and other places, English and literature and things like that. So about six weeks ago, a friend handed me a, a young adult novel and uh, the public school curriculum that goes with it and just asked me to, to evaluate it. The novel, some of you may know it, it's a, it's, a, it's a sweet little book. It's called The Watsons Go to Birmingham. It's about an African-American family that moves, well, takes a trip from Michigan down to Birmingham, Alabama in 1963. And they happen to be there when the church bombings occur in Birmingham. The main character at the end of the story goes through two crises. One is that he nearly drowns. He's going down in this lake for the last time when his brother suddenly comes upon him, dives in, and pulls him out. Second, two days later, the church bombing happens, and he's witness to this destruction and death, and he goes into kind of a post-traumatic stress syndrome. He closes up and won't come up for air to anybody, but over the course of two or three or four months, the family rallies around him, 
and slowly encourages him to re-engage and enables him to re-engage in life. So he goes through these two crises in which other people have stepped in and rescued him. Now, the public school curriculum for this tells us the lessons we're supposed to learn from this book. And let's put the first slide up. This is the lesson it says. There's a strength in all of us that gives us the courage to deal with our problems. And if one looks deep enough inside, they will find the courage and the inner strength necessary to face even the most insurmountable conflicts in life. I'm sorry, that's not what that book says. That guy would have died twice if he had not been rescued by those who loved him. But this is the spirit of the age, guys. That we are like God. And that we have inside us all the resources we need, need to meet the challenges of life. And that's a lie. We need to get that out. You're going to see it in the news this week. You're going to see it in movies you go to. You can go to psychologists who will tell you this. You'll see it this week if you pay attention. But we have to just throw that out and realize that the truth is what Paul says to Timothy in that verse first. Can we go to the next slide, please? Look at what he says. You then, my son, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. That flips the whole thing on its head. Paul knows that Timothy doesn't have what it takes. John Stott writes, To tell a man as Timothy, Timoth as Timothy to be strong is comparable to telling a snail to hurry up or a horse to fly. Instead, Paul points Timothy to the true and reliable source for all that he needs. It's a source that's outside of Timothy, and it's found in the grace of Christ Jesus. I love the Lion's Roar song. That was my favorite from among the VBS ones. But there was another one. We were here at the fiesta, the party the other night. And, uh, and the one they sang, one of the lines, I'm not going to sing, don't worry. But one of the lines says, Lord, don't laugh. I, I can't do it, but God can. That captures it, right? This was Paul's experience himself. In 1 Corinthians 12, he says it really clearly. He says, A thorn was given me in the flesh. Um, three times I pleaded that the Lord would take it away from me, that, he, that it should be taken away. But the Lord said to me, My grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in weakness. That's not what you hear from the world, right? Recognizing our weakness turns us to the axis of grace. Paul Tripp says it like this. He says, Grace has the power to do what nothing else can do. Rescue you from you. And in so doing, restore you to what you were created to be. That's what the gospel does. It rescues us from ourselves and, and enables us to be the people we're intended to be, created to be, specifically because of what Christ has done and his sending of the Holy Spirit. But let's think for a minute... How does grace... We know grace kind of forgives us, makes us feel better about our situation, but how does it give us strength? Let me unpack a few of those. By God's grace, we have been forgiven. We no longer stand condemned. So when we experience, and I bet many of you this week have experienced condemnation from someone, accusation from some source, contempt from someone, because we can stand on God's grace, we don't have to lash out and condemn in return. We don't have to be filled with contempt for other people. We can respond with the grace that we have received from God. We don't have to respond in kind. That's strength. 
By God's grace, we have the full measure of God's love. We're loved and treasured in Christ. This enables us to love others who don't return our love. It enables us to love those who aren't lovely, those who aren't easy to love. Remember, as Christians, we are not permitted to hate. That's not part of Jesus' spirit. He didn't say go out and sometimes hate each other. He said go out and love those, right? But because we can be filled with God's love by His grace, we can do that. I love the way Tom Manning put it the other day when I was talking to him. He said, we are released in the love of God because of what Christ has done. We are free to love those even when they don't love us back, even when they don't care about us, even when they're not paying attention to us, we can love. That's strength. By God's grace, we can accept the fact that we are needy because we have met Him who meets our needs. We don't have to keep up some kind of false image. We don't have to curate an excessively impressive Facebook page or Instagram story because we realize that ultimately it doesn't matter what the world says or thinks about us. What matters is what God says and thinks about. And we have His grace. We are under His favor. By grace, we don't have to act like we have all the answers, because the truth is we don't have all the answers. I'll always remember uh, this truth coming home to me. Uh, For many years we heard, uh, in PBC, we heard Rod Rod Ritchie's dad, Ron, preaching. He was honestly kind of scary to hear, but, but... Every sermon, he's kind of worked in one of the, this truth that says, and I quote, it's our first time on earth. We don't know how it all works. It gives us the humility we need, right? Right? We can be comfortable in that because by God's grace, we get the wisdom we need when we need it. Our job is to trust, not to be in charge. This is the strength to be honest with who we are and honest with who we are not. Because in God's grace, we can be secure. So in almost any situation where we face temptation, the temptation to lash out, the temptation to not move forward out of fear or anxiety, the temptation to withdraw, the temptation to give in to lust or to anger or to greed, we need to turn to God's grace. We can turn to God's grace. This is exactly what Paul means when he says in Romans, at the very end of Romans, he says, What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who is against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? We don't have to be in need, right? We don't have to, 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 to parasitically seek something from the world that God has already given to us. The writer of Hebrews, Hebrews puts it this way, Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and grace to help in time of need. Grace for the time of need. That's the strength. That's the grace. That's the way, that's what God gives us to meet the demands of life. That's how Timothy can be strengthened. And that's what Paul wants for his son, to have the proper place to find his strength to meet the demands of life. But he also wants Timothy to have an understanding of his purpose. Let's look at 2.2. Paul says, And what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. That phrase, faithful man, is a... Is, is a, in a form that could be faithful women too. Well, first we have to ask, what had he heard from Paul? Well, of course, it's the gospel, what we call the good news. And we always have to remember that it's good news, not good advice, not good counsel, not just good teaching. It's news. Something happened, and in light of what happened, all of life is to be understood and interpreted differently. Let me give you an example. The Twin Towers attack. 
Um, I remember the morning it happened, we were on our way up to school in Costa Rica, and a young man pulled up next to us in the car and he said, hey, did you hear? Some kind of plane hit one of the Twin Towers. That's all he knew at that point. We thought, well, that's weird. Frankly, knowing the kid who said it, I didn't really believe him. But, but by the time we got up to school, the TV was on, and we saw smoke pouring out of one of those towers, and we thought, oh my gosh, look at that. And then as we watched, the second plane hit the second tower. And the picture changed completely. It went from, what a weird accident, to, we're under attack. That piece of news, that incident, changed our understanding of the whole scene. The gospel is like that. But the gospel affects not just our understanding of one event, but all of life and the meaning of life, right? Jesus' life, his teaching, his death as the Lamb of God to cover our sins... and his resurrection clearly identify him as the Son of God. For life to be understood and lived rightly, it's got to be understood in light of that. In Jesus is the concrete evidence that God is real, that God is involved in human life, that God hates sin, that God loves man, and that God has an eternal plan for man. Paul wants Timothy to entrust this news to others who will turn trust it to others. See, there's four kind of generations envisioned here. Paul heard it from Jesus. Remember, at various times Paul says, I delivered to you what I received from the Lord. And then Paul goes to Timothy. Timothy then to others who Paul envisions will in turn pass it to others. And it's a good thing they did because that's why we're here today. And if there's going to be a church filled with believers, with gospel followers, with Jesus followers, a hundred years from now, it's because we do that today. Paul wants his son Timothy, living out of the strength of God's grace, to engage in the gospel of God with the people of God. He wants his son to be gospel-centered and to walk with the people of the gospel in the work of the gospel. Paul says there that Timothy had witnessed in front of, he had seen Paul's, Paul's words in front of many witnesses. Paul saw, excuse me, Timothy saw Paul on many of his missionary journeys. He saw him preach to Jews, preach to Gentiles, sometimes in ways that they were receptive, and sometimes in which a riot started, sometimes in which they ran him out of town, sometimes in which they tried to kill Paul, and Paul just calmly got up and went to the next place and started over again. Right? He saw Paul declare the word and live the word in radical ways. So Paul is talking about embodying the gospel in word and deed and passing that on to others. It's the word of the gospel and the life of the gospel. See, it's not, our faith is not an object to be passed on like a family heirloom. right? It's a relationship with God. God uses people to introduce himself to other people. He doesn't write on the sky and said, follow this. He, he brings the gospel to us via people, right? The gospel is holistic. It's a life that is de- lived dependent on the goodness of Christ, a life which Christ makes beautiful little by little, and a life in which the sacrifice of love is manifest. And love always involves sacrifice. It's much more than words or information just learned from a book or the book. It has to be lived out to be understood. You can't learn to play golf or fly fish or play a musical instrument simply by reading a book. The book can help. The book is good. But you need to see it lived out. So it is with the gospel. 
So when Paul says, entrust it to faithful men and women, he's just suggesting an intentionality where we look at those that God has put in our lives and those who are hungry and ready and who will be able to also pass it on to others and say, invest in them. Right? It's the passing on of the gospel word and the gospel life to others. To those close to us, first in our families, you know, with our kids, with our wife, with our husbands, but then outside of that too, because that's the cutting edge of, of where the church expands. Right? So let's be intentional about this. Do you have a Paul in your life? Do you have someone you can go who has walked with God longer that you can go to with questions about God's word and God's, and God's ways? If not, seek one out. Don't be ashamed to do that. And it might, it's my bet that they would be thrilled to have you ask and to begin spending time with them on that basis. Do you have a Timothy? Do you have someone you are passing along the word of the gospel and the life of the gospel? It's essential. And as you do it, you will become stronger in your faith. You know, if you, you know it very well. If you, if you teach anything, you've got to know it better yourself. Right? And, it, and it, it's a form of kind of built-in accountability there that works. It's a beautiful way that God has planned it. And if some of you are here thinking, well, that's tough. I, I don't know if I know enough. I'm not experienced enough. I need to say that if you've been in this church for any length of time, and you've heard Jackson and Rod and Josh and the elders teach. You have more training than most of the pastors in this world. You really do. Use it. Pass it on. Entrust it to others. That's what Paul wants for his son Timothy. But we have to remember, it's not just for Timothy. This is what every human being needs. This is central to the fact that the gospel lived out in the people of the body of Christ, in the church, is what every person on the planet needs. See, government doesn't have what every human heart needs. Money doesn't provide what every human heart needs. Medicine won't provide what every human heart needs. But the gospel, coming through God's people, meets the need of every human heart. The gospel treats the heart and the mind and the soul and the body. And as God's people, we pay attention to all those things and bring that gospel to bear on all those needs. But of course, there's nothing easy about this. It's easy to talk about. It's another thing to do it. That's why Paul moves immediately. He's equipping Timothy here. Look what he says here in verse 3, because he's realistic. Paul is always realistic. He says, share in the suffering, in suffering as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. No soldier gets entangled in civilian pursuits since his aim is to please the one who enlisted him. That phrase, share in the suffering, is one word in the Greek, and it's a little bit of a challenge. I've struggled with it a little bit. But where I've come to is, I think what he is saying is, Timothy, don't expect this Christian walk to be easy, but remember, we're in it together. Engaging in the gospel will involve hardship, but it's a hardship that we're meant to go through together. I was talking to Ellen Kitson this week, and uh, she and Rich had just gotten back from the cold trip to the, the Holy Land. And she, I said, how was it? And she said, well, there's one word that kind of jumped out to me. And she says it was the word rugged. The land is rugged. Jesus had to have been a rugged man. Paul was a rugged man. When you look at all these guys went through, right? Without a doubt, the Christian walk is a rugged demand. We have to have a rugged spirituality about us. 
But going through hardship is profoundly different than going through it alone. Going through it together is different than going through it alone. When we live as a community, as the body of Christ, in the midst of hardship, our our relationships deepen. And we see God's work in us and among us more clearly as we help each other out, as we support each other. These are some of the things that Paul has in mind when he says to share in the suffering. This also explains the soldier metaphor. Soldiers would have been a common sight, obviously, in Paul's day. There were Roman soldiers everywhere. This was the Roman Empire. And Paul draws a lot of his analogies and a lot of his metaphors and imagery from soldiering, from battle, and from their their armor, so to speak. But no one comes into the military with the expectation that it's going to be easy, that it's going to be cush, that it's going to be couches and potato chips. Right? They expect challenge and difficulty and danger as a part of the deal. But the fellowship of soldiers who endure battle together is the powerful, life-changing thing. It's the redemptive thing in that experience. Veterans will often talk about, and I bet you, I bet you know some, will talk about their friendship, the brotherhood, as being the, one of the best things that comes out of military service. I used to teach the novel All Quiet on the Western Front. It's the story of a young man who goes through the horrors of World War I as a 17-year-old. And he says, and I quote it, he says, um, camaraderie with my fellow soldiers was the finest thing to come out of the war. When hardships are shared, they take on a different quality, and they create something beautiful. That's the picture of the body of Christ working together in the challenge of living out the gospel. There's one other thing in this metaphor that Paul wants us to get, I think. It's the idea that a soldier has to pay attention to what he's doing, right? Paul talks about not getting entangled in civilian pursuits. This doesn't mean that you get a free pass and don't have to pay the bills, mow the lawn, wash the dishes, that kind of stuff. What it does mean is that you have to stay focused on your task. As David Roper used to say, make sure the main thing stays the main thing. Right? So when Paul talks about not getting entangled, he's talking about not getting distracted and getting pulled away from the main duty by other things in this world. Jesus told this parable in the parable of the sower and seed in Mark 4. I don't know if you remember that parable, but there's describes four soils. Seed falls on the road, seed falls among the rocks, and then he describes the seed falling among the thorns. And this is the one I think that maybe Paul even has in mind here when he thinks about that. Jesus says there in Mark 4, others are the ones sown among thorns. They are those who hear the word But the cares of the world, the deceitfulness of riches, and the desires for other things enter in and choke the word, and it proves unfruitful. That's the idea of getting entangled in civilian pursuits. We get distracted and lose perspective. And let's face it, we are a distracted world. Our attention attention span is shrinking by the minute. We have to battle to maintain our focus and to stay on track, to stay on task. The communication of the word of the gospel and the life of the gospel is the most important thing in the world. Period. So David Platt asks us to reflect and say, what is entangling you and what's entangling me? Let's get out of that and get back on task. The next metaphor is in verse 5. Paul uses three here. An athlete is not crowned unless he competes according to the rules. I don't really see this as a don't cheat teaching, although you can take it from that, right? I think he's kind of going for something more than just don't cheat. 
the idea is to compete legitimately. And one way to think about it is that there are no shortcuts in training or in preparation. You can't just show up and expect to compete. Gordon Fee's commentary tells us that when the uh, ancient Olympians had, were going to compete in their Olympic Games, they had to uh, uh, train diligently for 10 months in order to qualify to compete in the Games. So it's about that kind of intentionality, that kind of discipline. Spiritual growth does not happen without us engaging in that growth. It doesn't happen passively. We may want it to, it's not going to, right? It means getting into the Word, it means praying, it means obeying the Word, it means denying our flesh and trusting God in its place. It means taking steps of faith, which can be uncomfortable or awkward. It means engaging in the work that God has for us and reaching out to the people God has in our lives. The question is, do we live our lives with God that way? We need to be careful not to let God's grace become an excuse for us to be passive. Paul wants his son to gain strength from God's grace, the strength he needs to fully be engaged in the gospel, as an athlete must be fully engaged in what he's trying or she is trying to do. Third metaphor, the hardworking farmer who ought to have the first share of the crops. We're in Idaho. Farming is familiar to many of us. It's about hard work, consistent work, detail-oriented work. Passive farmers harvest weeds, nothing more. One of the essential qualities needed in farming is patience, right? Patience is one of the central things that God tells us we need in the walk of faith. If you look at the bread of the Bible, time and again, patience is what our faith seeks God's strength for. Wait on me. Be patient. Be still and know that I am God. Because we get impatient. We're notoriously impatient and increasingly impatient. Our world builds impatience into its system. But waiting on God. We always want to do our things in our way, in our time. And the great challenge here is to wait on God for His way to supply our needs and in His time. Sometimes sitting still is the hardest thing we can do. So in each of these metaphors, we see hardship and suffering, discipline, that rugged spirituality. But there's another side to each of them. I don't know if you noticed. We might call it the end game. In each case, the metaphors also have to do with looking forward to the end or the goal. Paul is encouraging Timothy, in other words, to live today with an eternal mindset. We are in time now, but we belong to eternity. And that determines, because we belong to eternity, that influences directly how we spend our time now. A soldier is joining the service because he's joining a cause greater than himself. It's a cause that's directed and guided by his superiors. But the end, in mind, is a victory, is a defeat of the enemy and a glorious future victory. Likewise, for the athlete, in all his or her training, the long-term goal is in mind. Paul talks about being crowned after winning the race. I remember when Laura trained for the Roby Creek half marathon. She strategically did short runs, long runs, hill runs, flat runs, paced herself, got it all organized. Why? Because she wanted to make a certain time on that ridiculous race over the summit, right? You didn't find me training for that. I clapped, but that was about it, right? All right? 
And she, but, but why, why did she go out all this? How could she motivate herself to get out all this? Because she saw that goal at the end. Right? If you want to play a beautiful piano recital in September, you've got to play today. And what will get you out of your chair and into that, onto the bench to play? The idea that there's going to be people who want to listen to me in September. I've got to get ready. You keep the end in mind. You keep the goal in mind. If you want to get yourself a nice big bull elk or mule deer buck this fall, you better get out there and shoot that rifle. You better shoot that bow. And you better get yourself in shape because those, things aren't, those trophies aren't going to wander into your backyard. Right? But the vision of them, envisioning that bull kind of coming out into the clearing, is what gets you up the hill and gets you in shape today. Keeping the end in mind helps us today. It clarifies how we live in the present. If you're an athlete training for the Olympics, let's say there's one here in this valley, trains for the Olympics, and he drives, and all of a sudden Krispy Kreme's on the right. You know what? He drives right on by. Because Krispy Kreme's and, and, and winning a gold medal don't mix. Now, when I drive by, other things happen. We're not going to go into that. The farmer plants... Not because he loves to watch the little plants. He wants a harvest at the end. He's looking at the end in mind as he takes the days along the way to encourage and nourish the plants. But think about what, who is saying that right now. It's Paul, unjustly imprisoned, right? By the Roman emperor in, in a dungeon virtually and imminently facing his own death. If there's any time in anybody's life when you think they're justifying and saying, this has all been a waste. It's not worth it. You would think it would be right then for Paul. But Paul is focusing on the goal. He sees the end. He's about to step into eternity, and there is not a hint of self-pity, not an ounce of regret, because he can taste eternity, and it tastes so good, right? The Word of God is absolutely clear that this hardship, this suffering, this rugged walk of following Jesus is emphatically, spectacularly, unequivocally worth it. Don't ever forget that. Paul says it in Romans 8. He says, I consider the sufferings of this present time are not worth being compared to the glory that's coming. We have to keep that in mind. We're in one page of the book today, and maybe this part of the story is dark. Maybe it's confusing. Maybe it's upsetting, but it's not the end of the story. It's not the end of the book. And we know that the book has a good ending. We know the hero wins. God establishes his kingdom of love and justice based on the work of Christ. And keeping the end in mind helps us spend, to spend today well. That's what Moses meant in Psalm 90. At least part of what Moses meant in Psalm 90 where he said, Teach us to number our days that we may get a heart of wisdom. If we keep the end in mind, we can know how to spend our time wisely today. Right? So finally, we see at the very last verse here of the passage today, we see Paul thinking about his son and thinking, Well, this is going to probably going to be my last letter. He's not going to get many more letters. How's, and he wants him to be able to keep moving on, right? He wants him to know the way once his spiritual father is not on the earth anymore. So look what he says. He says, think over what I say, 
for the Lord will give you understanding in everything. We see that beautiful coordination between God's enablement and our faith-filled effort. We saw it at the beginning when, when Timothy was exhorted to take the grace of God to be a strength and to move forward in the rugged walk of the gospel. And here, notice what he says. Timothy has to do the thinking. He's got to sit down and dig into the Word of God, and God will give him the understanding. But both things are necessary. Both things are necessary. You can be an expert in the Bible, know the Hebrew and the Greek like the back of your hand, most of it memorized, and miss the point. How do I know that? Because that happened to Paul. He thought he knew what he was talking about. He started not throwing these Christians in prisons is a thing to do. Until he gets knocked off that horse on the road to Damascus, and all of a sudden, that was illumination, and he understood the Bible completely differently. Same Bible, but now he understood its real meaning. When we dig in, the Lord will illuminate us. But we have to do our part too. And that's how we're going to be able to move forward. That's how we're going to be able to draw strength from grace in our time of need. That's how we're going to be able to engage with the gospel, with the people of the gospel, for the work of the gospel. That's how we're going to be able to withstand these sufferings. And that's how we're going to be able to keep the goal in mind when we keep God's word close and let him illuminate it and breathe it into life for us. Let's pray. Lord, thank you so much for this good word from Paul to his son. It's for us too. We ask that you'd illuminate it now, tonight, tomorrow. Give us the passion to stay on task and give us the community to suffer these hardships together. Make us rugged Christians, Father. That's what we need. Supported all of it by your grace. In Jesus' name, amen.